Man, if you have your Bibles open up to the Gospel of Mark, Gospel of Mark this morning, we're going to be beginning chapter 5. If anybody has ever told you that the Bible is boring, I believe it's because they've never actually read it. This morning, we're going to look at one of the most polarizing Jesus stories in the Gospel of Mark, the demoniac at Gadara. Mark chapter 5, we're going to be studying verse 1 through verse 20 together, but I'm just going to read for your hearing this morning, verses 6 through verse 9. Beginning in verse 6, the Bible says, When he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and worshipped him. And he cried out with a loud voice and said, What have I to do with you, Jesus, son of the most high God? I implore you by God that you do not torment me. For he said to him, come out of the man, unclean spirit. Then he asked him, what is your name? And he answered saying, my name is Legion, for we are many. Let's begin with the word of prayer and then we'll dive into the text. Dear Lord, again, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for your word, Lord. Lord, I pray that as I stand up here this morning, that you would give me strength, that you would fill me with your spirit, you would empty me of self, Lord, that you would help me to say only what you would have for me to say. God, I pray that you would give me unction and freedom in the pulpit, Lord. Lord, I pray for those here this morning, that you would bless them through the preaching of your word, that you would convict them, that you would challenge them. Lord, that we would have ears to hear, that we would leave here this morning with something to apply to our lives, that we would leave here this morning different than when we came in the door, Lord. Lord, bless the teaching of your text, Lord. Christ, name we pray. Amen. Has anybody here ever been to Disney World before? Just raise your hand if you've been to Disney World. All right, Disney World, okay. So living in the state of Florida has a lot of different perks. Well, for one... You have sunshine, okay? <laughs> you have beaches, you have dolphins. And one of the perks that comes with living in Florida is a discounted price to Disney World. So when Brooke and I first got married, I ended up getting us season passes. We actually ended up doing part of our honeymoon there at Disney World. And if you haven't been to Disney World, it's, it's actually made up of four separate parks, right? So there's four different theme parks that make up all of Disney World, and before Brooke moved to Florida, I was already in Florida, my family was already in Florida, and the rest of my family actually had Disney World passes, and so when my little brother found out that we were getting passes, you know, he was excited, and he said, you guys have to go to Hollywood Studios first, because at Hollywood Studios, they have this ride that is called the Rockin' Roller Coaster. If you've ever been to Kings Island, it's somewhat like Flight of Fear, except it's just a little bit faster, a little bit better, and a little bit darker. So it's this roller coaster that is inside of a building. And inside of this building, they have these flips, these hills, these twists, these turns, and all of the lights are off. So you can't see where you're going. You can't tell what is going to be up ahead. Remember the first time I rode it, there was a point in the ride where you go down a hill, you hit some twists, some turns, and after what I thought was the last loop, it started to slow down. And I relaxed. Like, man, that was fun. That was awesome. Getting to breathe a little bit. And before I knew it, we hit another 
drop that I could not see. And I believe that this is a great representation of what following Jesus is like. A roller coaster in the dark. As we step into our passage this morning, we find Jesus and his disciples on the other side of the Sea of Galilee, on the other side of the storm which we looked at last week. After almost shipwrecking in a storm and losing their lives, no doubt the disciples are ready to relax. They're ready to decompress. They're tired of the the high intensity of following Jesus, and they just want to chill and get a break. Yet as soon as their boat hits dry ground, they come face to face with a crazed, maniacal, demon-possessed man. One of the major themes in Mark's gospel is the authority of Jesus. In Mark chapter 1, verse 1, Mark begins by saying that this is the the account of Jesus, the Son of God. And so over the next 16 chapters, what Mark tries to do is, Mark is trying to prove that Jesus is the Son of God by showing the authority of Jesus over all things, over sickness and disease, over rabbis and tradition, over wind and waves. And as we study our passage this morning, we will see how even Satan and the devils are under the sovereign rule of King Jesus. So as we look at our text, the first thing I want for us to see is the reality of Satan. Look at the first five verses with me. Verse 1 says, Then they came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gadarenes. And when he had come out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit who had his dwelling among the tombs and no one could bind him not even with chains because he had often been bound with shackles and chains and the chains had been pulled apart by him and the shackles broken in pieces neither could anyone tame him and always night and day he was in the mountains and in the tombs crying out and cutting himself with stones Jesus and his disciples make it to the other side of the Sea of Galilee and make it through this troubling storm only to encounter an even more troubling man. I want you to imagine that you're on this boat with Jesus as it lands. As your boat begins to approach the beach and the moon is lighting up the sky and you look out towards the terrain and I'm sure it's probably full of fog from the sea And as you're examining where you're landed and where you're at, you see mountainsides and you see steep cliffsides. And as you begin to just scan the area and see where are we going to go, you see this dark, ominous shadow of what appears to be a cave. And this cave catches your attention and you're looking at this cave and the closer you begin to look, you then see the silhouette of a malnourished and human creature emerging from this cave. The closer this man begins to get to your bow, you notice his matted and upkept, unkept hair. You notice his naked body that is painted red from the blood, from the scars and scabs that are covering his body. You see the dirt and the filth and the grime that is on him. And all of a sudden, this creature looks towards your boat, and he begins to run directly at you. As he's running, you begin to hear the clanging of metal, and you 
Rub your eyes a little bit and you look and he has chains on his wrist and shackles on his feet. This is the stuff that nightmares are made of. Mark tells us this crazed man emerging from the tombs was filled with an unclean spirit. He was demonized. He was possessed by a devil. His soul was no longer his. His mind was no longer his. His body was no longer his, but rather he was under the authority and control of Satan, the prince and power of the air. And yet I know that even as I suggest that, and even as I say that, there may be some in here that consciously roll their eyes in the back of your head. Gallup Research did a poll in 2023 that found that while 74% of Americans believe in God, only 58% believe in the devil. There was another poll that was done that polled 2,000 self-professing Christians, and what they found was four out of ten of those Christians agreed that Satan is not a living being, but rather he is just some kind of symbol of evil. But as we look at our passage, and as we look at our text this morning, the, the first thing that I want you to see is that the reality of Satan is that Satan is real. The reality of Satan is that Satan is real. Listen, the greatest trick the devil ever, devil ever, devil ever pulled was convincing the world that he did not exist. Satan is not just some figment of our imagination. Listen, Satan is not just a representation of all that is evil. Satan is not some cute cartoon character that has horns and a pitchfork, but rather Satan is the enemy in Genesis 3.15. He is the father of lies in John chapter 8. He is the accuser in Revelation chapter 12. Listen, Satan is a murderer. He is the one that has come to steal, to kill, and to destroy. According to the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 14, he tells us that Satan was actually an angelic being, that Satan was around the throne of God, that Satan at one time worshipped God, that Satan was created by God, but Satan became full of pride and Satan wanted to be exalted. He wanted to be lifted. He wanted to be honored and glorified. He wanted to be the one that was worshipped and not God. And what happened is that as a result, Satan was cast from heaven. And ever since Satan has been cast from heaven, Satan along with all the rest of the angels that rebelled with him have made it their purpose to oppose God. And the main way that they oppose God is by leading God's people, by leading God's creation, by leading the ones made in the image and likeness of God, the ones whom God loves into rebellion against him. And as we look at scripture and as we look at the world around us, I believe that it is abundantly clear that Satan and his demons are not only real, but they're active. Listen, as I already said, Satan and his devils are not just this mystical idea of evil, but rather they are the literal embodiment and perpetrators of evil in this world. The apostle Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 6, he says, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. That word wrestle means that there is this active struggle that is going on, that the powers of evil 
are actively at war, that there's spiritual warfare that is going on, that Satan is trying to actively trip us up, that he's trying to actively destroy us, that he is trying to get us to turn away from God. Listen, Satan is not your buddy. Satan is not your friend. He's not some cute idea and just somebody that wants you to have a fun life. But rather, the end goal of Satan is the end goal of sin. Destruction. Because of this Satan, this man was isolated and outcast. Because of Satan, this man was rejected and feared by even his own family. Listen, because of Satan, this man was a harm to both himself and to anyone that came near him. The reality of Satan is that Satan is real. The reality of Satan is that Satan is active. And I believe most important for us this morning, the reality of Satan is that Satan is destructive. Satan wants to wreak havoc in your life. Listen, Satan wants to steal your joy. He wants to run off with your peace. He wants to destroy your family, ruin your relationships, to corrupt your mind and body and have your soul. However, while we recognize the destructive reality of Satan, while we recognize the power and influence of Satan on our world, while we recognize, as Peter wrote, that the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking who to devour, we need not fear. Because Jesus came as the one to redeem all that Satan sought to destroy. All seemed lost and hopeless for this poor, deprived man until he laid eyes on Christ. Look at verse 6. When he saw Jesus from far, he ran and worshipped him. And he cried out with a loud voice and said, What have I to do with you, Jesus, son of the most high God? I implore you, I, I beg you by God that you do not torment me. For he said to him, Come out of the man, unclean spirit. Then he asked him, What is your name? As this man lays eyes on Jesus. As he just gets a glance of this boat and he sees Jesus in the distance, the unclean spirit that is within him runs toward Christ and throws himself prostrate at his feet. Now, now but listen, this is what I need you to understand is that this, this word worshiped and this act of worship was not out of a compelling love. For Jesus. Listen, it was not because the unclean spirit uh, 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 thought that Jesus was the savior of the world, but rather simply the man falls down before Jesus because in Christ there is a fearful recognition of one who is stronger. And in verse 7, prostrate before Jesus, the unclean spirit answers the question proposed by the disciples in verse 41, who is this man? He is the son of the most high We try to convince the world. We try to convince skeptics. We try to convince philosophers. We try to convince professors. We try to convince the hurting. I come here every single Sunday and try to convince each and every one of you that Jesus is God, yet even the demons know. Verse 9. He asked him, what is your name? And he answered saying, my name is Legion, for we are many. A legion was the largest unit 
of troops in the Roman army. A legion usually consisted of around 6,000 military men. And while this may not have been the exact amount of demons that are inside of this man, it is clear that an army of demons had overtaken this man, that an army of demons had possessed him and took his will. And yet this army of demons is no match for the army of one as they recognize their end and continue to beg Jesus for mercy. Look at verse 10. Also, he begged him earnestly that he would not send them out of the country. Luke, in his account of this, of, of, of this um, instance, says, and they begged him that he would not command them to go into the abyss. Matthew says that they begged him that Jesus would not torment them before their time. Satan and his demons know their time is short. Listen, they know the end is near. They know that their power and their time of destruction is limited. They know that one day Jesus will throw legion and Satan and all the other demons into the eternal fire that is prepared for the devil and his angels. As we look at this text, we recognize that while the reality of Satan is that Satan is real, that Satan is active and Satan is destructive, the reality of Jesus is that Jesus has sovereign authority, Jesus has sovereign power, Jesus has total control over even Satan and his devils. Yes, Satan is real. Yes, Satan is powerful. Yes, Satan is active. Yes, Satan is destructive. But Jesus is great. I've shared this before, but I believe it's worth repeating. You can give a proper theology of Satan in three statements. One, Satan is real. Two, Satan is powerful. Three, Satan is defeated. Not that Satan will be defeated, but that already because of the empty tomb, that already because of the perfect sinless sacrifice on the cross. Satan is defeated in fighting a losing battle. You know, oftentimes when people think of the Bible, oftentimes when people think of Scripture, Jesus, God, and the Christian life, we kind of get this this picture in our mind of the the forces of good versus the forces of evil. I've, I've seen a picture shared before where it's Satan and Jesus, and they're having an arm wrestling match with one another. You know, we think of this this grand narrative of God versus Satan, angel versus demons, the battle of the ages to see who will come out victorious. But as we look at this text this morning, we are reminded that the grand narrative of Scripture is not some epic throwdown between good and evil to see who will come out on top, but rather it is the story of good triumphing over evil. You know, sometimes... We talk about God and the devil. Like we are sure who wins the battle. In the book of Revelation, the apostle John is on the island of Patmos and he is given a vision by Jesus of the things to come. He's given a vision of the end times, the end of the age. But but what we need to recognize about the book of Revelation is that John was not just looking at something that was to come in the far distant future that was disconnected from 
reality, but rather as God pulled back the space-time continuum, John was watching things that were already happening because God is outside of space and time. John was watching the present future. Listen, John was watching the already not yet So now in Revelations 20 and verse 10, when John says the devil was cast into the lake of fire and fire and brimstone to be tormented day and night forever and ever, we can read that with confidence that Satan has already been defeated. What that means for us this morning is that because Satan and his devils are under the authority of Jesus, The number one tool to power over evil is not sage. The number one tool to power over evil is not holy water. The number one tool to power over evil is not some type of magic catchphrase. Listen, it's not coming in a circle and holding hands, but rather the number one tool to power over evil is faith and belief in Christ alone. In the words of the great reformer Martin Luther, and though this world with devils filled, to threaten to undo us. We will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. Listen, friend, release from Satan's power is achieved through God's salvation. It is achieved through believing in the gospel of Jesus Christ and believing in the death, resur- the death burial, and resurrection. And as we continue in our passage, we find that after begging Jesus to not send them to their final end, the demons now turn their attention and beg Jesus instead to send them into a nearby herd of pigs. And what we find is that Jesus consents. Look at verse 11. Now a large herd of swine was feeding there near the mountains. So all the demons begged him, saying, send us to the swine that we may enter them. And at once Jesus gave them permission. Then the unclean spirits went out and entered the swine. There were about 2,000, and the herd ran violently down the steep place into the sea and drowned in the sea. This part of this text is interesting to me. Why would Jesus grant the request of demons? Does Jesus make deals with Demons, I mean, Jesus could have and probably, you know, in our mind should have sent them to the abyss. Jesus could have sent the demons anywhere, but rather he chose to send them into this nearby herd of pigs. You know, and as I thought about it more, I, I believe that in doing so, Jesus accomplished several different purposes. First, he demonstrated that the demons were real, <laughs> He demonstrated there was actually something going on inside of this man that was not from himself. And then he also demonstrated that the deliverance from these demons was genuine. I mean, I can imagine as this man is sitting there and as the disciples are watching, they're probably like, man, this man said he has 6,000 demons in him. I really hope none of them stayed back. But the destruction of the pigs gave assurance to this man and the one watching that the unclean spirits were actually gone. But more than anything else, you know, Jesus likes to paint pictures, right? Jesus likes to give us these these visuals. And I believe that in doing this, Jesus gave vivid proof and a visual representation that 
Satan is indeed a destroyer. I mean, these demons beg to be cast, down, cast into this herd of swine. And as soon as Jesus allows them to go to the swine, what do they do? Run and dive headfirst off a cliff into the sea to their death. Now, Mark could have ended this story here. But instead, in the following verses, we get a glimpse now into our own hearts. And, and I believe we get a glimpse into our own response to the authority of Jesus. As already mentioned, one of the major themes in the Gospel of Mark is the authority of Jesus. But another theme in Mark's Gospel that, that if you've been following along with us, you may have picked up by now is this contrast between the crowds and true disciples. Look at verse 14. So those who fed the swine fled. And they told it in the city and in the country, and they went out to see what it was that had happened. And then they came to Jesus and saw the one who had been demon-possessed and had the legion sitting and clothed in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who saw it told them how it happened to him who had been demon-possessed and about the swine. Then they began to plead with him to depart from their region. And when he got into the boat, he who had been demon-possessed begged him that he might be with him. However, Jesus did not permit him, but said to him, go home to your friends and tell them the great things the Lord has done for you and how he has had compassion on you. And he departed and began to proclaim in the copolis all that Jesus had done for him and all marveled. After watching their pigs take off and dive suicidally into the ocean, the herdsmen take off and run back to town to tell everyone what just happened. And in response, as they're telling the townspeople and, and they're telling the, the owners of the pigs about what has happened, the townspeople, the pig owners, and the herdsmen return to seek out Jesus. I mean, somebody had just lost a lot of money. <laughs> somebody had just lost a lot of food for their plate. So I can imagine as they're heading towards Jesus, they're, they're, they're not too happy. I can imagine they're angry. They're upset that they're looking for vengeance. They're looking for revenge. But as they get closer to Jesus, that anger quickly turns to fear as they look and they see sitting at the feet of Jesus, the town terror, clothed and in his right mind the one they could not tame, now transformed. And one would think that at such a sight, one would think that at such knowledge of what Jesus has done, at such powerful transformation, that the crowd of people would rejoice. Listen, one would think that the crowd of people would be happy, they would be excited about what Jesus had done and want to know more about what else he could do. But tragically, rather than praising Jesus for his redeeming power, they plead with Jesus to leave. Jesus had not only delivered this man who was demon-possessed, but in the process, he had disrupted the whole town. And I believe that often what we find, even today, is that some reject Jesus out of fear, 
that he is going to disrupt and disorder my life, even though my life is already messed up. Some reject Jesus because they say, Jesus is going to change me. Jesus is going to change my direction. Jesus is going to change my heart. Jesus is going to make me change my desires. And for some, the pain of life change and the humility of submitting to Jesus as Lord of their life is scarier than the pain of bondage and the pride of being in control over their own life. So rather than celebrate what Jesus did and asking him to do more, they begged Jesus to leave. Listen, as you read this passage, something scary honestly happens in verse 18. In verse 18, Jesus is back in the boat because Jesus will not stay where he is not wanted. But Mark reminds us that disciples will respond differently than crowds to the words and works of Jesus. The man who has been touched by Jesus does not just receive the healing and walk away, but rather after having his mind and body restored. Listen, after being embraced by the grace and mercy of a loving and kind God, after having his life radically changed, there is a genuine heart-compelled desire to follow Christ wherever he goes. And in a gripping climax to the story, while the demons beg to not be tormented, listen, while the crowd begs for Jesus to leave, this now delivered, healed, and cleansed man begs to stay with Jesus. To which Jesus says, no, but gives him an even greater yes. Jesus says, rather than getting comfortable, I want you to be missional. Because to be a missionary for Christ in the area and the region where he was so well known and so long dreaded was far better and was, was a far greater impact than following Jesus to where nobody had ever heard of him. So Jesus sends them back home to share the good news. A maniac to a missionary. Can you see him? As he heads back to his house, his right mind, skip in his step, smile on his face, excited to see his family, excited to see his friends that he's been so long separated from. Can you see his kids as they are looking out the window and they see him in the distance walking towards the door? Mommy, mommy, daddy's home. I'm sure mama was like, oh, no, lock the door. And the kids say, no, mommy, something is different. He doesn't look the way that he used to look, mama. He's not walking the way that he used to walk, mama. Something is different about daddy. And something indeed was different because he had had an encounter with the living God and nothing was the same. If it had not been for God, he would have still been in that graveyard. If it had not been for God, he would have still been tormented by the unclean spirits. 
If it had not been for God, he would have still been the town terror. He would have still been rejected and despised. If it had not been for God, he would have still been a harm to both himself and to others. If it had not been for God, he would have still been separated from his family and his loved ones. But God. But God. Satan is a great destroyer. It was Satan who was kicked out of heaven and cast to earth for his rebellion. It was Satan who tempted Adam and Eve to sin. It was Satan who tries to lead us away from God. Listen, it is Satan who wants your separation from God. It is Satan who wants you to be condemned eternally to a hell made for him and his devils. Yet while Satan is a great destroyer, Jesus is an even greater deliverer. Listen, it was Jesus who saw us sin sick and separated from God. It was Jesus who willingly left the glories of heaven and came to earth. It was Jesus who lived a sinless and perfect life. It was Jesus who died an undeserving death on a cross. It was Jesus who paid the price for our sins. It is Jesus who offers salvation for our condemnation and is calling us back into a relationship with God. No one was strong enough to help this man. But Jesus can do what no one else can do. He can heal what doctors can't heal. He can mend what counselors can't mend. Listen, he can satisfy what drugs cannot satisfy. He can repair what you can never repair. There's not a hole too deep. There's not a past too tainted. There's not a sin too great. There is not a life too far gone for the grace of God to reach out and snatch you from the hands of the enemy. To make you new to clean you up, to restore in your life all that Satan has stolen. Christ does not tame us. He transforms us. He does not bind us. He sets us free. And my final plea for you as I close is that in hearing the words and works of Jesus, listen, in being exposed to the wonder, the majesty, the authority of Jesus, that you would beg him not to leave, but to stay. Every head bowed, eyes closed. Worship team, come forward.